Hi, welcome to The Kicker. I'm Kyle Pope, editor and publisher of the Columbia Journalism Review. This week, covering the Olympics. So we are now a little more than a month out of the planned start of the Olympic Games in Japan. It's planned because it's very much up in the air, really, as to whether this is going to happen. The Japanese authorities insist that it's going ahead, but a lot of other people are questioning whether it's the right thing to do, given a very high COVID outbreak in that country and and in a lot of other countries around the world. It'll be interesting to see how these games are covered and what what it even means to cover an Olympics. It's going to be so tightly controlled. So I'm really thrilled to be joined by Andrew Kay, who's a sports reporter for the New York Times covering the Olympics. Welcome, Andrew. Thanks uh, for having me. So you haven't traveled to Tokyo yet? I've not, no. I mean, normally in an Olympic cycle, um, I might have made a trip by now, maybe even a couple, um, to do some pre-reporting, get a sense of the scene on the ground. But obviously, this is not a normal Olympic cycle. And and yeah, honestly, we didn't we haven't been sure that we were even going to be there for the start of the games. And no, but at this point, it, it does look like, um, you know, all things are a go. So now we're preparing um, to make our way out there. So when are you going to leave? Um, looks like a few days before the opening ceremonies, which are July 23rd. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll touch down around the 19th and try to get situated, get mm-hmm. started. So have you you've covered other Olympics before? Yeah, I've been to one Summer Games um, in uh, Rio de Janeiro, and I've been to one uh, Winter Games in Pyeongchang, Korea. And I know that you cover the NBA, baseball, World mm-hmm. Cups, so you know how these big events play. But I mean, I'm, I guess I'm curious first what your pre-COVID, what it was like to cover the Olympics in terms of your ability to get access to athletes. Like how, and maybe it depends on the country, but how 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 does this usually work? Um, I mean, I always really enjoyed covering the Olympics, um, kind of for that reason, um, the access to the athletes, um, just by virtue of there being so many of them, um, more than 10,000 from, you know, more than 200 countries, there's just a lot of people to talk to. Um, so, you know, after, any number of competitions, they'll open a mixed zone where, if I'm not mistaken, athletes are required to at least walk through. Um, if you're, you know, a super high profile athlete, if this is something you do all the time, maybe you're not stopping and maybe there's not an expectation from the journalist that you are stopping to talk to just a group of random reporters. But in my experience, you know, um, if you're just flagging a table tennis player from like the Dominican Republic, they're more than happy to talk um, to you about, you know, what they're doing, what they've done, how they got there, their story. And and I think from a journalistic standpoint, um, that's just a dream come true and, and, and makes for really good stories. And, and do you get to roam the sort of athletes village? Again, in normal times, you have ath- access to the athletes village in sort of a limited capacity. Um, but there were common spaces where, um, you know, uh, somebody who's credentialed um, in the media could enter um, and, you know, like there would be stores and shops and there was a barber shop and, and um, you know, I got a haircut um, at the last Olympics in the athlete's village. Um, so all that stuff is not going to happen this time around. Mm-hmm. So I, I heard, I guess, it, I think it was on the BBC, there was somebody who was going through the details of... Mm-hmm of how athletes are going to move around this year because of COVID. And they're talking about like 
taking a bus, going up the back entrance to their hotel, staying in their hotel, going down the back entrance, getting their bus, going to the venue, doing their competition, getting back on the bus, going back to the hotel. Um, which sounds kind of miserable to me, but <laughs> how, how, what does that mean in terms of covering this? How are you even going to go about this? You know, I think a lot of reporters, myself included, are trying not to be pessimistic about this, mm. but, um, it, it, you know, there, there, it seems like it's going to be really, really tough. Um, it's, everything is going to be like, sort of, as you described, highly controlled. Um, and, you know, again, in terms of writing fun, good stories, um, that's kind of <laughs> the antithesis of it. Um, I think what's going to be toughest is that um, there's going to be a lot of Zoom press mm-hmm. conferences, which you know anybody who's you know worked in any field really um, over the past year knows um, it's not the most ideal way to make a human connection. Um, but even um, mixed zones, which are tend to be looser and, you know, even press conferences, um, I think, which they may or may not try to do in person, there's going to be um, like a separate ticketing process, a reservation process. So a lot of the spontaneity that goes into reporting um, mm-hmm. is going to be lost. I mean, for me, I always felt like that was kind of my bread and butter at an Olympics. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the ability to stroll into um any one of the arenas kind of sit there let something catch your eye and then literally walk down to the mix zone and and, um you know ask this athlete who you know may be completely anonymous in the united states about Mm -hmm. what was going on there um Mm -hmm. and sort of repeating that process three or four times and building a story out of that or if you can kind of roam into the stands and you know it's easy to make out who this person's coach is and you strike up a conversation that way and then you have another good story and you know, you kind of, you build a few weeks of coverage this way. Um, and it looks like a lot of that, most of that, if not all that is going to be lost, um, this summer. Hmm. Did you consider, or did the times consider not sending you or a team? Um, you know, without giving too much of (laughs) internal conversations, that that's an obvious thing that came up. It was sort of like, okay, if this is all going to be done via computer screens, could we not just sit up, sit up overnight, <laughs> watch these things on TV, streaming on the internet, and then sign into these press conferences. Um, I think, uh, thankfully, I'm happy this is what happened. Um, our editors sort of said, you know, no, let's do this the right way. You, you really can't predict what's going to happen um, in a given event when you're on the ground. And, you know, from a journalistic standpoint, you, you do have to be there. And, and you know, we're going to see things that we can't anticipate now, mm-hmm. um, for better or worse. Um, and, um, you know, it's definitely in our best interest as a news organization to, that, you know, has always taken the Olympics pretty seriously that, um, we're there. So I, I don't even think, you know, in terms of numbers that it's, that anything has really changed. We're still sending a big team of reporters and, and, you know, maybe some of that time we're kind of sitting there twiddling our thumbs, but, um, I think if we're trying to do the best job we can, uh, we've got to do it that way. And that's what we're doing. Yeah. You know, it strikes me that like in a normal year, this is like right about now is when you would start to see like there would be, you know, there would be a Time Magazine cover story sort of previewing who the mm-hmm. Olympic stars are going to be. There were, mm-hmm. The Times itself would have done a section or or a lot of coverage sort of profiling athletes and sort of handicapping stuff. And 
Um, I mean, these big sports events, the, you know, the World Cup and the Olympics are always about stuff other than sports, too. There's politics, there's whatever. It just seems that, like, and maybe it's too early to, like, guess what the storyline is going to be. But, like, it seems like the competition itself is the kind of least important thing going on. Or or do you not? How do you how do you think think through that? Um, I You know, I, I tend to agree. Like, again like you can't really deny that that's the number one thing on people's minds. And that's been, you know, 99% of every single international Olympic committee press conference over the past year has been about um, coronavirus protocols. And, and it sucked a lot of oxygen out of, you know, the story as a whole, I think. Um, and, and so, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. And I think that's just the way it's going to be. And, and um, that is the number one thing that people happen to be curious about this mm-hmm. time around. Um, I do think, you know, once the games begin, at least some of the old rhythms are going to return. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the Olympics um, are very much a TV event. Um, mm-hmm. That's where the IOC gets most of their revenue, but, you know, they're also staged in a way um, for, you know, to maximize sort of the television experience. And, you know, it's certainly going to be mentioned on TV as well, but I think once you start kind of building out these athlete stories in the same way, um, you know, once TV producers start kind of working their magic, um, I think people will kind of get sucked into the competitive storylines as well. But, you know, again, you're absolutely right about the coverage. You, you, you would have had any number of, you know, quote unquote, like media summits where the U.S. Olympic Committee would be hosting journalists or inviting them to various places around the country to meet athletes, to have them tell their story. Again, all that was done over a period of two or three days. Um, I think it was early last month um, on Zoom. So, you know, it, it's just it's the reality of, of kind of the sports world we're operating in. It's hard for me to gauge reading your stories and other coverage sort of what the body language of the the Olympic committee is mm-hmm. the, the Japanese uh, Olympic committee like they uh, you know publicly they're they're very like they're, they're very sort of like one note like where well, this is gonna happen mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and we're taking every precaution and it's gonna happen um, but then you have like I mean you reported this week that the Asahi Shimbun, which is a partner of the Olympics mm-hmm. said that it yeah. needs to be called off and is is there any do you sense any crack at all or no? Um, Japanese officials and politicians have I mean they've tended not to use absolute language. I think they've always said you know we can't predict a hundred percent what is going to happen um, three months from now two months from now. Now I think it's 50 days. Um, that said, I think there's just a feeling, you know, among the organizers there, among the um, Olympic committee in um, Switzerland that, you know, this is just too big of an operation to turn around <laughs> at this juncture. Um, and that, you know, if there's any way to make this happen, that that they need to, um, that, you know, public polls, um, public opinion polls in Japan right now, um, are skewing very negatively, um, in terms of the opinion of the Olympics. Um, I think anywhere between 60 to 80% of the population there has expressed, you know, a desire that this be moved or canceled again, but, you know, this is something that's been planned, um, since 2013 when, 
um, the games were awarded to Tokyo and even before then when, you know, they were putting their bid together. And this is something that, you know, officially $15 billion um, uh, have been, of uh, $15 billion has been pumped into a lot of that public money. And so uh, I think there's this feeling that they've got to try to make this happen somehow. Um, mm. And I think that's kind of what has made it so compelling because there is so much anxiety on the ground. Yeah. I mean, you had these amazing numbers in a piece um, that talked about, you know, when they, when they postponed it last year, Japan had 865 active cases of COVID. Now they have 70,000. So, and, and yeah. globally the, the number of cases is, is exponentially higher. Um you know this thing that you mentioned this you, this thing about athletes sort of required to walk through the mixed village yeah. or whatever it is mixed and, zone yeah yeah and it does really bring me to the Naomi Osaka story mm-hmm. I haven't seen anything that you written, you wrote about that right you haven't done anything on I've not I've not I've not written myself on it I've I've, I've followed the story um, just as somebody who's interested yeah um, yeah I mean it just seems like that her, what she did combined with the excuse that the Olympic organizers are going to have to restrict access to the crowd. Mm-hmm. Could this change the game in terms of media access to these kind of high profile athletes? I mean, do you, do you fear that or do you sense that in the air? Um, I think, I think every sports journalist, if you were to ask them any serious sports journalist has this sort of existential fear. And, and I don't think it's unfounded that, um, access is disappearing and may one day just disappear altogether. Um, that just, it feels like that's the way things are sort of moving. Um, but it's moving slowly. Um, uh, but it's, it, it does feel like a lot of things are pointing in that direction. Um, in terms of whether this one instance will change things, um, it doesn't necessarily feel like it. It sort of feels like, uh, the situation sort of played out, I guess, as best with, it could. with uh, Osaka, you mean? Yeah, with Osaka. I mean, if you look, for instance, at, you know, what a lot of her, her colleagues basically at the French Open said in the wake of her um, stepping away from the tournament, there was a lot of sympathy expressed. Um, I have a lot of sympathy. I, I think what she did was actually pretty brave, kind of in a sports world where there is this expectation that people just compete through everything. Um, and so you heard that from a lot of athletes there as well, but there was also this sort of just realistic sentiment that on some level, this is what they as athletes, some of them very lucratively compensated have signed up for. Um, so I think at least for a little while, you know, the system that's in place and, you know, the system that has actually made, um, athletes like Naomi Osaka, um, quite wealthy as athletes, and she's the top earning um, female athlete in the world, um, I believe. I think there's this idea that, or there's this feeling, at least for me, that you know it will kind of hold <laughs> for at least a little while longer. But for, but for sure, in the bigger picture, there is an existential fear that um, you know things are certainly moving in the other direction. I mean, look across sports, and that's that's definitely what's happening. I think I think COVID has actually been uh, in some ways, more of an existential threat. Um, I think sports leagues and athletes have, in a lot of ways, been looking for ways to to give athletes a little bit less access. If you talk about the NBA or Major League Baseball, these are these are leagues that 
um, are required via collective bargaining to have their locker rooms or clubhouses open both before and after the games. Um, and, you know, beat reporters um, use that time to, to kind of build stories, develop, develop ideas and things like that. Uh, what COVID did was put that whole process again um, on computer screens. And I think in... I mean, I could be wrong, but I don't think it's returned. I mean, you look at the NBA, they're in the playoffs right now. Um, they've got 20,000 people in the arenas, but um, journalists are still doing um, interviews over Zoom that have to be pre-scheduled. There's no more of this sort of, you know, walking up to a guy next to his locker and saying, hey, do you have a second to chat? Um, which, again, organically is how, in my opinion, the best stories um, emerge. I mean, you mentioned existential threats. I mean, does it make it existentially like, less fun to be a sports reporter? I mean, is this something that it, it will, at some point in fear it becomes like, yeah, just, I'd rather do something else? Um, I mean, I don't think I've reached the point where I've said, you know, it's not worth it to do it anymore. But like what you just said, I think that's certainly true. That The, the most fun part um, of being a sports reporter for me has always been connecting to people, um, telling a human story. Um, I did always love kind of when I was covering the NBA talking to, you know, the 11th guy on the bench and sort of writing a story about what it's like to be that guy. Or, you know, in baseball, it was sort of the same thing. Like people always said the relief pitchers, you know, the guys who, who are never sort of asked for interviews, those are the best interviews to do because, you know, they're happy to talk and, and you know, they, they know just as much as the next guy. When you sort of structure everything um, via, okay, the top players are going to be available for 10 minutes um, with, 12 other outlets on a Zoom call, um, you take basically, yeah, all of that away and, and uh, um, all that stuff that makes it fun for me to be a sports supporter away. And certainly, yeah, if, if, <laughs> if that's what the entirety of sports access was, uh, you know, I think I would have sort of a different idea of it. Well, I wish you fun in Tokyo. <laughs> find it. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> um, best of luck to you. Uh, we'll be reading. And thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, uh, it was fun. Thanks for having me. Um, you can follow CJR's ongoing coverage of the coverage of the Tokyo Games at CJR.org through our daily email newsletter and on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. See you next week.